For to me to live is Christ, Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 21. And in chapter 4 of the same letter, he says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And these are powerful words of the Apostle Paul. And there's many more examples in his writings. After his conversion on the road to Damascus, Christ totally filled his life. The Lord Jesus Christ was a huge influence on the Apostle Paul. And Paul desired and strove to let Christ live in him every day. His relationship with Christ was real, it was life-changing, it was strengthening, it was energizing. And Christ in his life gave him the motivation to continue on pressing towards that mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ meant absolutely everything to Paul. He counted all things but loss for the excellency, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus his Lord. And can I, can I or can you say that about our relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ? Is my relationship, is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ as real, as, as powerful, as energizing, as strengthening as Paul's was? And I find those questions very, very challenging. And so often in today's world, we can easily drift and move away from that vital closeness and specialness with our Lord Jesus Christ. But this evening, we don't want to leave that as just a question, as a searching, challenging question. We want Paul, Paul the man, to lead us and show us how to get back and refresh ourselves in making our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ real and powerful so that we can say with him, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. And Paul this evening, God willing, is going to show us his secret of developing and enriching his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that this really isn't a secret for those who have been baptized into Christ. We've entered into this relationship with God and with his son, but it's always good to stop and refresh and renew and rebuild this relationship as we move forward with Christ towards the kingdom. Now Paul's close and special relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ began on the road to Damascus, and that's where we're going to start this evening in Acts 26. So what happened on to Paul on the road to Damascus had a profound influence on the rest of his life. It set his direction for his future life. It had a lifelong impact on him, readjusting, resetting his priorities and focus. It was the start of, of shaping him, changing him, transforming him from his old life as Saul the Pharisee to his new life as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read Acts 26 from verse 16 to 18. Because we want to see that Paul was called upon by God and the Lord Jesus Christ to take others through that same life-changing process as he went through on the road to Damascus. So Acts 26 verse 16 says, But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee delivering thee from the people 
and from the Gentiles and to whom now I send thee to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan and to God that they might receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. <clears throat> so here Paul is given his mission by the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to focus at the moment on verse 18. There are a number of things in verse 18 which Paul was called on by the Lord Jesus Christ to present and to do for others. So his work was to open the eyes of the blind so that they would receive spiritual light, sight. He was to turn them from darkness to light of the gospel. He was to turn them from what verse 18 says, the power of Satan to God. His role was to show sinners the way so that they could be forgiven, so that they could have a living hope of an inheritance, an everlasting inheritance. Before, they were unholy, unbelieving, without Christ. But Paul was to show them a better way, and through the process of conversion, they could be sanctified, purified through faith in taking on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, in verse 18, is the work of Paul from this point forward. This is what he is called to lead others through. And Paul could be very, very effective in doing that because all these things in verse 18 is exactly what he's gone through himself. He could relate to each one of these things very, very clearly. His eyes had been closed. He knew what it felt to have closed eyes, hardened to the beauty and the wonder of the gospel message. He himself had been in darkness. He, in the words of verse 18, had been under the power, the influence of Satan. And yet, through the intervention of God his, in his life, his eyes were opened, he was turned, he had been forgiven, he was purified and made holy through the Lord Jesus Christ. All these things happened to Paul on the road to Damascus and in, in the subsequent few days after. The conversion of the once fierce opponent to the truth. And although Paul's conversion, in a way, was unique, no one else had a visitation from heaven in, in such a way that Paul did, what he was called on to do for others was to take them through the same process as he went through on the road to Damascus, to let God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the saving power of the gospel have its powerful, wonderful, life-changing influence on them and in their lives, to make it real for them as it had been real to him. And so every day after this point, Paul would have been a witness, would have relived what he himself had undergone through undergone on the road to Damascus to others. Every day to others he would express the power and the wonder of that as he preached and brought it to the attention of people. And so what we want to do is look carefully at Paul on the road to Damascus. What exactly changed him, impacted his life? What influenced him in such that, in that, in that lasting way and made that deep impression on, his, on the rest of his life? Well the record presents Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus in two main stages. It can be summarized as a death and a resurrection. There was a death on the road to Damascus, not a literal one, but the death of the old man, Paul, or Saul. And there was a resurrection on the road to Damascus, rising up of a new man in Christ. What needs to die? We'll come to Acts 22 and reading from verse 6. So Acts 22 and verse 6, it says there, 
And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? So note specifically the way in which Paul describes his journey in verse 6. He says, I made my journey. And it was his journey. He had initiated it. It was his idea. He was going the way that he wanted, doing his own thing, doing what he wanted to do in life. Well, notice also the words of Jesus in verse 7. There are two people and two wills in what Christ says in verse 7. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? In those words, there's two people, two parties, Saul and Christ. Saul is opposing Christ, persecuting him, which is clearly showing that Paul's will at that stage wasn't the will of God and wasn't the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was his own. He was doing what he wanted to do. And so the old man, Saul the Pharisee, needed putting to death, dying to self, dying to his own desires and will. And it was put to death on the road to Damascus. And we know that because there's a change indicated in verse 10 of Acts 22. So it says there, and I said, what shall I do, Lord? And I just come back to Acts 9 and verse 6, where it puts it slightly more strongly. So Acts 9 verse 6 says, And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And those words indicate the change that happened in Paul. There's still two people, still two parties in those worlds. It's still Christ, still Saul. But now... There's not two wills or two desires, there's only one. Because now Paul wants to do anything that Christ says. Lord, what would thou have me to do? He's rel relinquished his own will, his own desire. He wants to be guided and led by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so at that stage in the record, we have two people, but now only one will. Paul has taken on Christ's will, God's will. And those words mark the turning point in this encounter because immediately after Paul says those words, if you just come back to Acts 22 verse 10, Acts 20 verse, 22 verse 10, the, the Lord Jesus Christ said, what sh well, Paul said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, arise, go into Damascus, and there shall be told of thee all things which are appointed for thee to do. So Jesus says, arise, go. So Paul fell to the ground in verse 7, like a death, you can't get much lower than that. Now in verse 10, he's instructed by the Lord Jesus Christ to arise, stand up, move on, get on your life, newness of life. That word arise is elsewhere used in the scriptures to describe the resurrection from the dead. Here in the conversion of Paul, it, it is also like a resurrection, not a literal one, but a rising of Paul to newness of life, which was subsequently fulfilled three days later in his baptism. So, so as we stand back and reflect on the process Paul went through, just going to emphasize an important point, and that is his conversion consisted of both a death to self and a resurrection to new life in Christ. It wasn't just a death, and it wasn't just a resurrection. Jesus Christ wasn't intent on crushing Paul and leaving him in that position battered and bruised with his spirit destroyed. And the Lord Jesus Christ didn't lead Paul just to a newness of life, ignoring his previous 
sins. It's a two-step process, which Paul was taken through by the Lord Jesus Christ. All believers need to go through. We need to be confronted with the awfulness of self, the terribleness of sin. No, there can be no compromise with that. Self needs to die. But also a new man needs to arise and be created. There needs to be a restoration. And through that, throughout the rest of his life, Paul applied that principle in various dealings with the characters and the people that he came across and the issues and the problems that occurred in ecclesial life. For example, in his dealings with Elymas in, in Acts 13, we know that story. Elymas withstood Paul and Barnabas. He withstood his preaching to the ruler of the country. So Paul challenged Elymas. Elymas had to realize he was wrong. He was acting as, in a sinful way. So Paul caused him to receive blindness. But it was only temporary. It was only for a season. It was only for a while because Paul wanted ultimately Elymas to be converted, to repent, then arise to a new way of life in Christ. Now, just another example, and I will just quote from Galatians 6, verse 1. We won't turn there. Uh, Well-known words, Paul says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. So sin had to be dealt with, had to be confronted, couldn't be any compromise, but... The whole aim is to restore, to rise again in freshness, in newness of life. So so what an amazing change occurred with Paul. What an amazing transformation Paul underwent on the road to Damascus. From doing his own thing, going his own way, having his own will, to taking on God's will, the Lord Jesus Christ's will. And the question we want to look at now is, what really converted Paul? How did this conversion really happen? How was Paul so convicted after this um, visitation by the Lord Jesus Christ? How was he so convicted of his terrible sins, his past old way of life, and then arise to a new way of life? Well, the answer is in Acts 22, verse 14 and 15. So Acts 22, verse 14 says, And he said, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will and see that just one and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And notice the repetition in those verses and what Paul had seen and what he had heard. What Paul had seen and heard on the road to Damascus, verse 14, led him on this conversion process. What he had seen and heard on that road greatly influenced him And impacted him. And that in verse 15 was to become the basis of him witnessing to other people from that point forward. As as it says, verse 15, thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. In other words, Paul was to take other people through the same process as he had undergone. He would bring before others what he had seen and heard on the road to Damascus. Every day, Paul would have relived that, what he himself had undergone and expressed the power and the wonder of that as he preached and witnessed to others. And so what we need to consider is exactly what did Paul see and what did he hear? Well, it only took a few seconds, what he saw and what he heard, but it had an amazing influence. Come back to Acts 22, verse 6. First of all, he saw something, a light. Acts 22, verse 6 says there, And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh unto Damascus about noon, 
Suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. So Saul had almost reached Damascus. We're told he came nigh into the city. He would have been able to see it in the distance, the, the buildings reflecting the rays of the midday sun. He was almost there, full of expectation, intent on getting his work done and persecuting believers, suppressing the Christian movement. And then suddenly, without warning, he saw that light. And the record is very descriptive of that light. It's described in verse 6 as a great light, strong, intense, powerful. We're told in verse 6, it shone round about Paul. So all-encompassing light filled the whole sky. It was impossible to miss, blinding to the ordinary eye. And it did blind him because we know from verse 11, he couldn't see because of the glory of that light. But it wasn't just a light that he saw. He saw something in that light, and he actually saw the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that from verse 14, because it said there, he saw that just one, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's several other indications in Acts and also other uh, epistles that he saw Jesus in that light on the road to Damascus. So Acts 9.17 says, Jesus that appeared unto thee in the way, Acts 9.27, he had seen the Lord in the way. 26 verse 16, I, Jesus, have appeared unto thee. 1 Corinthians 9, have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Last of all, he was seen of me also. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 8. So it have only lasted a few seconds because it was so bright and so brilliant. But Paul did see the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory and his wonderful splendor. A few seconds or less, he saw the living, the risen, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he fell, slumped to the ground, blinded through the intensity and brightness of that revelation. And so the very last thing that Saul saw before his vision was clouded, before he came blind, he saw the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory. That would have been burnt and etched into his mind, a scene never to be forgotten. And in that, and through the consequent interchange between him and the Lord Jesus Christ, he realized and appreciated the fact of the living Lord. Jesus was alive. Jesus was living. Jesus was the Messiah. He suffered and died, and yet had been raised, and now sat on the right hand of God in glory. I'll just quote some pertinent words from Zechariah 12, verse 10. Uh, it says there of the Jews, when they see the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom, it says there, they shall look upon me. They shall see the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory, in his majesty, in God's kingdom. They shall see him with, his, the, with their very own eyes. They shall look upon me, whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him, as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him. And Paul, in the next few days of blindness, had opportunity to think about such words and other similar quotes like Isaiah 53 and how applicable they were to his life. He appears the Lord Jesus Christ. He was persecuting the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of his sins and also our sins, Christ had to die and be crucified. And the realization of that and the impact of that would have really touched Paul's heart as he was brought face to face with the one who had gone through all this suffering and pain for the benefit the salvation of the whole world. And that image, that scene which Paul saw, it only took a few seconds, and yet that lasted with him all his life. 
as his work from now on was to present what he had seen to others, to lead them to marvel at the glory and the wonder of the one who had died for the sins of the world and yet was alive again, the wonder of the risen Christ. And, and the challenge for us is, in today's busy world, is, is to stop and see the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not, not a once-off thing that occurs just before our baptism. It needs to happen regularly in our lives. It's not a literal seeing, as Paul, on the road to Damascus, but seeing Christ in the scriptures, making him real, making him living in our lives. So Acts 22, verse 15 said, saw to be a witness of what he had seen and what he had heard. So we're gonna, gonna now look at what influenced and impacted him in what he heard. So as Saul lay prone on the ground after seeing that great brilliant light, Jesus spoke to him from heaven in verse seven of Acts 22, where it says, and I fell unto the ground and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. Now it's very revealing how the Lord Jesus Christ spoke to Saul. Jesus didn't berate Saul in, in fury or, or anger. There was no malice in the Lord Jesus Christ's words here at all. Rather, Jesus just asked a simple yet powerful searching question, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's not a statement. It's not a direct re re rebuke. It's a question. And it's designed and constructed for Saul to, to take into himself and think deeply about. And though it's a short question, there's actually a, a lot that that question reveals. First of all, it shows that Jesus knew the name of Saul. He mentions Saul's name twice in that question. Jesus knows the names of, of people, of his believers, our names also, as, as he addresses Saul by his name. Saul was in absolutely no doubt. This question was for him and him alone. Now in this question, as we, as we previous, previously mentioned earlier on, there's, there's two parties, Saul and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus brings up the matter between them and them alone. Jesus goes straight to the person he had a problem and an issue with. So he's prepared to challenge Saul with that question. We notice a very direct question. There's, there's no compromise in it, whatever. It tells it how it was. The way Saul was acting was affecting the Lord Jesus Christ, described as persecuting him, persecuting Christ. And that's a terrible thing to contemplate. Jesus, in his mortal life, had already undergone his sufferings and and persecution, he's died on the cross, and now he's going through pain and agony of persecution that Saul is causing him. How could it be? And although there's only two parties here in verse seven in that question, there's actually another party, and that is Christ's followers. He was so associated, so aligned with them, everything that they went through, he went through. All the pain and the suffering they felt, Christ felt also such as the, the sympathy, the alignment, the association of Christ and his followers. Their persecution was his persecution. Well, the real question to Saul in verse seven was why? 
Why, Saul, are you acting in this way? Why are you persecuting me? Why are you hurting me? And, and, that, and that question got to the, the heart of the matter, a question which pierced, penetrated Saul's heart. And it's a question that he had to take, carefully examine his motives, uh, why he was acting and behaving in such a way. It was actually a question Saul never answered on the road to Damascus and even the rest of his life. He doesn't explain to Jesus why he's acting in such a way, why he's persecuting believers even to foreign cities. And in reality, how could he answer that question? He doesn't answer because at that moment, the very reason he was doing it was swept away from him. He was persecuting believers because he didn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Didn't believe Jesus was alive, that he was risen. Didn't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. Saul believed Jesus was dead, buried, gone. And yet now, in the face of this visitation, which proved exactly the opposite, what could, Paul, what could Saul or Paul say to that question? He, he could a, a, offer absolutely no response at all. Now let's just spend a few moments thinking about persecuting the Lord Jesus Christ, which, which was the crux of the issue Christ had with Saul. But what about us? Do we see ourselves in that at all? Can we see the whole of humanity in that phrase? Why persecutest thou me? Do we persecute Christ? Persecution is, is quite a strong word, isn't it? And we don't act like Saul, who was clearly going about causing believers in Christ physical pain, physical torture, and even death. And yet, we can act in a way which hurts the Lord Jesus Christ and causes him pain. Every time we go astray from the truth, we cause Christ and God pain and hurt. Every time we do or say or even think something against our brother or sister, actually hurts and pains the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Every word which cuts them down, belittles them, he feels because the Lord Jesus Christ is so aligned with each and every one of his people. Acting against them is acting against him. And if, if, we're, if we're really honest, we have acted in a way which has hurt and pained the Lord Jesus Christ and the mighty Lord God. And so the question for ourselves is the same question as Christ had for Paul. Why? Why do we act in a way which hurts our brothers and sisters, which hurts Christ, which hurts God, which causes them pain? Why have we let him down? And the reason why is because every time we sin, every time we act in that way, we effectively lose sight of the glory of our Lord, of the fact of the living Lord. He, he's not as real to us as he should be. We move away from him in our lives. But by sinning, we're acting in a way that we forget God. We forget the Lord Jesus Christ. And thinking about that is very pertinent for ourselves. It's, it's very challenging penetrating and it abruptly brings us up and makes us look deeply at ourselves and our motives but we could actually turn that around to be positive though because if hurting and paining our brothers and sisters causes Christ and God pain what causes Christ and God happiness and joy and it's caring for 
and performing acts of kindness to our brothers and sisters, giving them a cup of cold water, or as in the words of Matthew 25, giving them food, practical things, drink, hospitality, clothing, visiting them, and so on. Christ is so aligned, so associated with his people, such acts of love and care, of giving and providing, of kindness and love, are felt deeply by them, by him. And as Christ says in Matthew 25, verse 40, inasmuch as he have done it unto the one of the least of these, my brethren, he have done it unto me. And the motivation in acting in such a way is that God and his son are real to us in our lives. We believe, we realize, we serve a living Lord, the risen Christ. Well, Paul actually lived that positive principle after his conversion. In his letters, his desire, his care, his love for all his brothers and sisters is so evident and so wonderful. He felt for them in, his, in their distress, provided for them as best as he could. He knew that when they were joyful, Christ was joyful. And the words in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 28, that which comes upon me daily, the care of all the ecclesias. And just another example from Philippians 1, 24, nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. He would do what was best for them and not for himself. He's prepared to do anything for his brothers and sisters and knowing that it will cause joy and happiness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, so coming back to the record in Acts 22, we, we, we note that Jesus doesn't actually name himself in his question of verse 7. He just describes himself in the words, in, in the word me. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? So Saul was kept in some sort of suspense. Who was this person speaking to him? Who was that identity? Who was the identity of the voice? And so Paul responded by asking the question in verse 8, Who art thou, Lord? So Paul seeks that, that identity of the person speaking with him. He desires, he really wants to know. He didn't know who Christ was. He didn't recognize his voice. Although in his heart of hearts, he probably knew, could piece it together. But he had to be definite. He had to be doubly sure who it was. If it was the Lord Jesus Christ and the whole foundation that he built his life on up to this point, the law and the prophets and so on, was meaningless. Well, Jesus' response to Paul's question gives another direct statement uh, at the end of verse 8. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. There could be no doubt of the identity of that voice, the one who's speaking to Paul. Jesus of Nazareth. Christ reveals who he was. He doesn't just reveal his identity. Again, he emphasizes his issue with Saul. He confronts, challenges Saul. Saul, you're persecuting me. Saul, you are hurting me. So driven home to Saul, the reality, the awfulness of what he was doing. Now, just come to Acts 26, verse 14, which adds some detail at that point. <clears throat> the end of verse 14 of Acts 26 um, says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. It's hard for thee to kick against the goads or the prods. And in those words, Jesus emphasizes to him it is futile, carrying on in the same direction in his opposition to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't going to succeed. He was not going to achieve his aims of destroying the Christian movement. His resistance to the furtherance of the gospel was useless. <clears throat> So Paul saw Christ, he heard these words of the Lord Jesus Christ. What was Paul's reaction 
going to be? Well, this encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ had its intended effect. Come back to Acts 9. So Acts 9 and verse 6. It says there, And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what would thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. So Paul wasn't like old King Saul or Pharaoh in the Old Testament who hardened their heart and were stubborn. They refused to change when confronted by the Lord God. But Paul did change. He let it have its intended effect, the transformation effect on his heart. He says, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And we can sense his changed state of mind in those words, especially if we go back to another, pe- another place where the same question was asked. Just come back to Acts chapter 2, where the same or similar sort of question was asked by people who were impacted by the words of, of Peter in Acts chapter 2, as they learned about the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. So in Acts 2, Paul, Peter has just given those stirring words on the day of Pentecost, and he says in verse 37, now when they had heard this, They were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Which is in fact what Paul says on the road to Damascus in Acts 9 verse 6. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And that shows where Paul is at, at this stage of the encounter. He he was pierced, he was stung in his heart. The full realisation of the enormity of what he had done before God and the Lord Jesus Christ in his persecution an opposition to believers had been brought home to him. He realized he was dust and ashes. He wasn't worthy of anything except death. He's now not full of himself and his plans, his desires. He's, he's humbled. He's of a broken spirit, truly repentant and contrite. And in what he says, shows that change of mind and attitude. He's willing to do anything, absolutely anything that Christ says of him. In effect, he's saying, I'm ready, Lord, to do anything you say. Just say the word, direct me, I'll do it. He's relinquished his own will, his own desire. He's he's ready and willing to take on anything that Christ says of him to guide him. Well, Saul knew that because of what he had done, he really deserved to die. And God and the Lord Jesus Christ could have smitten him, punished him right then and there. Could have destroyed him, taken vengeance on him, on this, on this awful, terrible persecutor of his, of his people. But that's not the way of Christ. The way of Christ, well, Paul, in, in Acts 9, verse 6, was now in a state that he could be worked with, uh, molded and shaped by God, humble and contrite, looking only to the mercy of Christ. And from that state, he could be made, even him, into something beautiful for God. And so there's, there seems to be a change of tone in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 6. The issue had been dealt with. There'd been a change of attitude in, of Paul. And so Jesus says to him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Words of restoration and upbuilding. Arise and go. Jesus lifts Paul up, causes him to arise, to arise in newness of life. Uh, and Christ expresses that shortly he'd be given some information, direction, guidance on what he, what he was needed to do. 
So what a wonderful, beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, uplifting this, this once terrible persecutor of, the, of his people, uh, bringing Paul through that conversion process, giving him focused direction on the way ahead. What amazing mercy and grace was shown to him. And so what a picture we have in Acts 8, sorry, Acts 9, verse 8. Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him unto Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. Well, before his conversion, at the start of Acts 9, Paul was madly rushing around. He's rushing towards Damascus, spurring everyone with him in the, in the group onto greater efforts. We must get there. He was walking in the noonday, noonday sun. Now, after his conversion, Paul was blind, and he had to be led like a little child, moving ever so slowly, step by step, towards the city, learning that ever-important lesson that now he wasn't the leader. He was following his Lord. He needed to, lead, to be led by him. So we know that he was in the house of Judas for three days, blind, able to do nothing but to pray and to think. Paul's left on his own with his own thoughts, which carried on the conversion process, the purifying process, until Ananias comes to him. So we read in verse 16 of Acts, well, Acts 22, Acts 22, verse 16. <clears throat> Ananias says, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So it's a life-changing encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, an encounter which utterly altered the course of Paul, and now he's baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ with his sins washed away, seen as a pure, clean believer, justified from, from his sins. What Paul went through on the road to Damascus set the direction for the rest of his life. It was the start of, of shaping him, transforming him from his old way of life as Saul the Pharisee to his new way of life as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And from this point, God and the Lord Jesus Christ continued to work with Paul. This was just a start, and it needed to continue. Now, the Acts record presents Paul as immediately preaching in the synagogue of synagogue of Damascus. We do know, however, from Galatians 1 and verse 18, Paul spent three years in Arabia for the preparation and reflection before he started that preaching in Damascus. And also, from this point to when he started his, his mission work in earnest was about 12 or 13 years. That's, when he, that's the time from this point to, to Acts 13, uh, to when he starts preaching to the Gentiles in his missionary journeys. His conversion on the road to Damascus was just a start, a needful start. But from that point, there was still a preparation work. There was still a work which, which God, Lord Jesus Christ, did with him until he was ready to take on his life's work. Well, we want now to reflect on Paul's conversion process and see how it relates to us and continues to write to us in our lives. Now, first of all, Paul on the road of Damascus needed to stop. 
He's madly rushing to Damascus, uh, fixed in his idea to persecute believers in Christ, and then he was brought to a halt in his life, which needs to happen for everyone. Everyone who takes on Christ in baptism needs to stop, stop rushing about in their own lives, doing their own thing. And their attention needs to be filled with Christ as, as Paul's vision and focus of his life. He's filled by that great light which envelops all around him. And not, this only not, not only needs to happen before, our, before baptism, but also regularly in our lives. We need to fill our lives with Christ. And we do it day by day and also week by week as we bring to remembrance the great things God has done for us in his son at the memorial feast. We also, as Paul's challenged by the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, which caused deep self-examination as it penetrated his motives, his heart, of why he was acting in such a way. That's what everyone, every believer needs to go through as well. That's what needs to happen in, our, in the conversion process and what needs to happen week by week as we meet around, meet around the bread and the wine, the memorials. As 1 Corinthians 11 says, let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. We take the bread and wine not to congratulate ourselves and how well we have done in the past week, but we realize how far short we have fallen from the perfect example of our Lord. And that, that pierces our hearts. We remember what Christ has done for us, the pain and the suffering, what he went through. And, it, and we come with a broken and a contrite heart. As Paul says, as Paul said in Romans 7, Verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And such a deep and honest self-examination process produces that, that, that sort of heart. Well, this isn't a once-off process because we continually need to let these things be real to us, to, to regularly refresh ourselves and make Christ a reality in our lives to be continued to be impacted and influenced by him, to produce and evoke a response in us as we produced in Paul, of such willingness to be led, guided by God and his son, to, to look as Paul looked to God and his son for direction. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Setting aside of our own will and taking on God's and Christ's will. And then arising to newness of life, rejoicing, that we have been accounted righteous, justified by God's grace and mercy. And grace was a motivating factor in Paul's life, right, right from his conversion, right after his conversion. He never forgot the wonder, the mercy that was expressed to him on that road to Damascus. Now just come to 1 Corinthians 15, and we see an example of that. <clears throat> So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, that I'm not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the ecclesia of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And so the thankfulness and wonder of Paul comes out in those, in those verses. That's the spirit which drove him on. 
that the grace of God, the mercy of God acting within him, which Paul talks time and time again throughout his letters. Paul arose to newness of life, and that meant letting Christ live in us, which means for a believer also, letting Christ live in us, in our lives. Come to Galatians chapter 2, some powerful words of Paul to the Galatian believers. Galatians 2 and verse 20. So it says here, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ meant everything to the Apostle Paul. And we can sense he he desired, Paul desired to align himself fully with his Lord. Every day he strove to show the dying of the Lord in his body and also the living of the Lord in his body too. Uh, And the actions of Paul's daily life with, with the actions of that faith which motivated by the love of Christ, the love of his Lord. So what an amazing impact and influence Christ had had on him, which which began on the road to Damascus. And Paul leads us and and believers as he he takes us on the same journey. As he takes us, as he strives to let us develop the same spirit as he had in his life, being crucified with Christ and of letting Christ live in us, seeking an ever closer relationship with him. Well, Well, our final point on this overhead, all this translates into a living witness of Christ. As Christ said in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5 and 6, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, God has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul believed and so therefore spoke. He was a living witness to God and Christ in his life. All this we learn from Paul the man. It's an amazing lesson for ourselves as, as we go through that same developing conversion process in our lives. To die to self, to sin, and to live to Christ. Filling our lives with God and with his son. And to be continually impacted and influenced by them. Making these things real in our lives. Well, Paul when recounting his conversion in First of Timothy... 1 and verse 17 finishes that section by crying out with thankfulness and gratitude now unto the king eternal immortal invisible the only wise god be honor and glory forever and ever god can do anything he can take someone like saul the pharisee who has turned the chief or the foremost sinner And let his word convert him to produce a child of God. Paul the Apostle, Paul the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's conclude by looking at Paul's vision of the kingdom in the final letter which he wrote in 2 Timothy and chapter 4. Second of Timothy 4, reading from verse 6. Where he says there, for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. 
Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Paul could be so sure that he was going to be in the, in the kingdom of God. He was absolutely confident of that, not in his own strength, but reliant on God's mercy and God's grace. And his desire, his deepest desire, was to lead others to share in that same amazing hope of the crown of God's righteousness, which is held out to all those who love the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may Paul, Paul the man, lead us to say ourselves with all confidence, with all awe and wonder, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. A series of, of two Bible classes for this week and next week, God willing, are on the subject, Paul the Man. And Paul was a unique man. He was a special man. There was no one quite like Paul. And God used this man, Paul, for his important work of spearheading the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles throughout the then known world. And that was a momental task. A huge task and and we can get some idea of the extent of that work from the map on the overhead in front of us as the gospel spread first it began in Jerusalem spread to Judea and Samaria then into the Gentile world through Syria up through Asia then Europe all the way to Rome as the book of Acts finishes off with and God chose the right man for that work of preaching to the Gentiles through the labors of Paul he was helped by others the gospel was spread far and wide, took deep roots into the uttermost parts of the world. It was an amazing spread and outreach of the gospel in the space of about 30 years or so. Now, I presume everyone know, all knows about Paul, something about Paul this evening. He's a very well-known character. And there's a plethora of information available for us to gain an insight into the special man. Over half the book of Acts follows Paul and his work. And he wrote by inspiration over half the books of the New Testament, 14 letters, if we count the book uh, of Hebrews in that as well. Well, this series of two classes about Paul won't go so much looking into the intricacies of, of his letters and his arguments. We, we hope to look at Paul the man and better understand him as a person, to, to try and get into his inner thinking, to see who he was, and what he stood for. Now, the life of Paul consisted of two main parts. Before his conversion on the road to Damascus, and then after his conversion. So before his conversion, he was an unbeliever, a typical staunch Jew, set in his ways. He was Saul the Pharisee. After his conversion, left behind his old way of life, and became Paul the Apostle, Paul the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, a totally committed believer and we're going to turn to Philippians 3 later but just just reflect on this verse for the moment where Paul makes reference to the time before his conversion Philippians 3 verse 7 reading from the ESV on the screen but 
Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So the things that were gained to him before his conversion, his heritage, his status, his lineage, his blamelessness under the law, everything that he counted dear to himself, he says, he counts loss when Christ came into his life. But does that mean that Paul, before his conversion, and Paul's life before his conversion, was a total waste? Was it meaningless that he wished his upbringing, his initial 30 years or so, before his conversion never happened? And the answer is no. Paul's former life as Saul the Pharisee wasn't meaningless. It wasn't a waste. It was all part of God's purpose to develop and prepare him. So he would be useful and effective later on in his life in the plan that God had for him. Paul couldn't separate himself from who he was as a person. And that started from the day he was born. Paul the Apostle was the same man, the same person as Saul the Pharisee. Paul the man was the same person in essence as Saul the man. Paul the man was based on, shaped by what he went through up to that point. He had the same temperament. He had the same inherited character traits that he was born with. But now after his conversion, those were directed to serve God in the right way and put to his use. And to really understand Paul the man, we need to begin our consideration of him, who he was and what he stood for by considering him right from the day he was born. In fact, even before his birth, because God chose um, Paul and had a special plan before, for him before he was even born. Now let's turn to Galatians 1, where Paul gives a little insight into his life before his conversion. So Galatians 1, we're going to read from verse 13. Galatians 1, verse 13, it says there, For you have heard of my conversation or manner of life in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the ecclesia of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Now we want to focus on verse 15, where Paul actually quotes from Isaiah 49, verse 1 and 5, and applies those words from Isaiah to himself. Galatians 1, verse 15 we're told that God separated, God set apart Paul from his mother's womb. The ESV puts it this way, when he God who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. So Paul was a chosen man before he was even born, before his birth. God knows everything. He knew what Paul would be like and that God could use his special and unique qualities to fulfill his purpose in sending out Paul to preach to the Gentiles. Now, on this overhead, we've suggested that Paul or Saul was born in AD 1, early years of the first century. We're not entirely sure about that, but he would have been born around about that time, AD 1 or so. So when Jesus was a young boy of about five years old, Jesus was born around about 4 BC, another boy was born in Tarsus, two boys, different circumstances, who would receive different upbringings, 
Yet in God's purpose and in his grace, at the right time, the course of those lives, of their lives, would align. As Saul the Pharisee became Paul the Apostle, totally committed and devoted servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, coming back to Acts chapter 9, we're still thinking about Paul at the time of his birth. And Acts 9 verse 15 gives us further information in this regard. So Acts 9 verse 15. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he, Paul, is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So here in this verse, Paul is called God's chosen vessel or God's chosen instrument, as the ESV says. Paul is a chosen instrument of God, selected for the work of carrying God's name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. No one else was chosen for that work. God didn't choose Barnabas or Gamaliel. He didn't choose Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea. He didn't choose Peter, James, or John for that particular work. He chose Paul. And that choice was made before Paul was even born. And that means that the 30 years or so of Paul's life before his conversion on the road to Damascus was in preparation for his future work. So God intended Paul to be brought up as a Jew in a Gentile city. God intended Paul to be brought up as a strict Pharisee by his parents and rabbis in the local synagogue. And God intended Paul to be challenged by the Lord Jesus Christ. And God knew that Paul would be the main persecutor of the early ecclesia. It was all part of his development for his future role. Because Paul the man, the essence of who he was and what he stood for, the the real man he was, as we see him after his conversion, flowed out of who he was in his former life as Saul the Pharisee. Now, we want to start building up a picture of of Saul or Paul before his conversion to try and get into his mind to see why God particularly selected this man as his chosen instrument. Now, there's various things that make up the whole, the complete man or woman that makes us who we are. And on this overhead, we've represented this in a fairly simplistic way. So every man and woman have their own unique temperament and traits which are shaped and enhanced through the experiences and opportunities that that life brings. So we're all different, we're not the same. For example, just a few examples of that. Someone might be able to make quick or fast decisions, but someone else might take time to to deliberate and, and finally come up with that decision. Another example is someone might have a fiery disposition They're easily worked up, whereas someone else is naturally calm and and takes time to to build up momentum and and get worked up. And then perhaps a final example, someone might be outgoing in nature, very, very happy in a group situation, the life of the party, as it were, whereas others might be more naturally shy and reserved. They hold back. They're not very comfortable in a group. We all have different temperaments and traits. And the important point about these temperaments and traits which are in each of us, which are in Paul as well, is they're not good or bad in themselves. What makes them good or bad is how we use them, how we apply them, how they're outworked in our lives. Because we add to temperaments and traits, character, attitude, 
which are developed and shaped through various experiences and influences of life. So motivations, beliefs, goals, aims are developed, which were developed from an early age in Paul too. All these things add up to make us who we are, our personality, which is then reflected in the way that we live and seen by others. What we are as a person is expressed in how we behave, how we act, and how we speak. Now, some of these things in regard to Paul are very obvious from the scriptural record. His behavior, his words, his actions, clearly seen from his life as Saul the Pharisee and also his life as Paul the Apostle. Uh, and seeing those things, we can get insights into things which we're not told directly about Paul. We're not told directly about his temperament, his traits, his qualities, who he was, what he was as a person. Now, Paul went through many and varying influences in his life, which combined to shape him into the person he was. So right from an early age, parental instruction and early education played an influence in the life of Paul. We don't know too much about Paul's parents and family. We do know he had a sister. We can glean a few details from passages such as Philippians 3. So let's come to Philippians 3 and read a few verses there from verse 4. Well, Paul speaks about his former life as Saul the Pharisee. So Philippians 3, reading from verse 4, Paul says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, Concerning zeal, persecuting the ecclesia, touching the righteousness which is in the law blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. So from verse 5, we see that Paul's parents ensured that he was circumcised on the eighth day, as per the Jewish custom. He says in verse 5, he's of the stock of Israel, or, or the race, or the kin. In other words, he's of Jewish origin, of unmixed descent. So both of Paul's parents were Jews. He had true Jewish roots, which weren't defiled at all by Gentile blood. We also see in verse 5, he calls himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews, or as the RSV says, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Paul was a pure Jew, and in, there, in that will be a sense of pride and patriotism, a deep love for his people. And it appears that Paul's parents could trace the lineage all the way back, because he says... He was from the tribe of Benjamin in verse 5. Benjamin being the only son of Jacob born in the promised land and the name of the first king of Israel who, who Saul uh, was probably named after. So Paul's parents were very devout Jews, committed to the law. They, were, they were, would have been the ones to teach Paul in those early formative years and, and taught him Bible stories, got him excited in the word of God. He learned about the promises, promises of the Messiah, and so on. And as he grew older, Paul would have been taught by the rabbis in the local synagogue at Tarsus. He would have learnt, memorized the scriptures so by the age of 12. He probably could have recited most, if not all, of the Old Testament. Verse 5 of Philippians 3, we're told he's a Pharisee. And that meant that he belonged to the strictest sect of the Jews scrupulously upheld, firm to the teaching of the law of Moses, explained, interpreted, 
by the tradition of the elders. Unfortunately, we know that the Pharisees lost sight of what the law was all about, the true meaning of the law. More focus was placed on outward observance and external rights. And we will get a sense of that in verse 6, where he talks about touching the righteousness which is in the law blameless. Well, Paul was an excellent and promising student. It appears that Saul's parents desired him to become a rabbi, an honourable position for a Jew to attain. And so Saul was sent to Jerusalem to study under the feet of Gamaliel. And he was an exemplary pupil. We saw that in Galatians 1 verse 14, um, where we're told he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of mine own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So he had lots of drive, lots of energy, and a keen intellect. He was better than anyone else in his class. So he was on the path to greatness. And if he had continued in that way of life, he could have become the next Gamaliel, a revered teacher. So, so far we've talked about the Jewish influences on, on Saul, Paul. But he received more than that. So the culture and environment of Saul would have had an effect in his life as he was brought up in the Gentile city of, of Tarsus. Just come to, to Acts 21, where we're given a little detail about Tarsus. So Acts 21, verse 39, where Paul says... I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. I beseech thee, suffer me to speak unto the people. So Paul was born in the city of Tarsus. It was an important city. The ESV says, no obscure city. It's a city of repute, capital city of the province of Cilicia. It had a famous university. It was a re renowned as a place of education. And it was comparable to, to Athens and Alex Alexandrina. Alexandria, sorry. Well, Saul as a Jew probably didn't attend that university, but even so, Saul was well-educated. He spoke different languages. He, he was acquainted with Gentile literature and poets, because we know he, he quotes from them in some of his speeches and some of his writings. Tarsus itself is situated in a wide and fertile plain on the banks of the river Snidus, which flowed through it. And it was a port city and a place of much commerce. Uh, and men of various races walked its, its streets. And although Saul was a Jew, he no doubt would have had contact and taught to Gentiles in the markets or his workplace as a tent maker. He would have lived largely separate life to the Gentiles, yet he would have had some of that contact, being surrounded by Roman and Greek influence in that city. All these influences were preparing him for the work which God had for him, destined him for him to do. The combined influence was shaping his life for his future role. And it was a difficult role of, of bringing Jew and Gentile together in Christ. Two totally disparate groups. He paused to bring them together in one united body. And in his upbringing, Paul had exposure to both groups. So that background leads us to when we first meet Paul in the Acts record. The first actual Mention of Saul by name is in Acts chapter 7, where Saul is overseeing the stoning of Stephen. But we can sense that Saul's present earlier in the Acts record. Come to Acts 6. 
Saul's most likely present in the build-up to the stoning of Stephen, which is described in Acts 6. Um, he would have been, he could have been, amongst those arguing and debating with Stephen in the synagogue. So Acts 6, verse 8 reads, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians, and Alexandrians, and them of Cilicia, and of Asia, disputing with Stephen, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And so we note that Cilicia is mentioned in verse 9, the area where Saul was from, Tarsus being the capital of, of that region. And so Saul could have been there amongst that group, Debating, discussing with Stephen. Saul would have been skilled in debate, presenting an argument. He was very learned, he knew his scriptures, he was used to winning debates, and yet here, he and those with him were confounded by Stephen. They couldn't provide satisfactory answers or responses to the points that Stephen brought up. And Saul and those with him would have felt challenged and threatened by that. As, as we've seen, Saul was a zealous Pharisee, and his attitude was that the law and the traditions must be upheld. Uh, and we can see that emphasis coming out in, in Acts 6. Verse 11, it talks about Moses, and, and verse 13, the holy place, the law, um, and then verse 14, the customs of Moses. Well, why, why would Saul be so against Stephen and the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus just didn't fit into his understanding at this point, or his, his interpretation of the law. The law said that he that is hanged is accursed of God, Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. So therefore, how could the Messiah undergo a crucifixion as Stephen and the other disciples were preaching? For Saul, therefore, Stephen and all the believers in Christ must be wrong. The whole foundations on which he and the Jews based their lives and religion were being challenged and were at stake. The law, the prophets, the customs, the temples, and so on. And so therefore, a determined stand had to be made. Well, this stand of Saul was actually opposite to what his teacher and mentor Gamaliel counseled. Come back to Acts 5, verse 38. So, remember the story well. Gamaliel stands up in the council and he says, Acts 5:38, And now I say unto you, the rest of the council, refrain from these men, the disciples, let them alone. For if this council or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, he cannot overthrow it, lest happily he be found even to fight against God. So Gamaliel advocated leniency, toleration of believers. Give them time, give them space. See how it, how it will all work out. If this work be of men, come to nothing. But if it be of God, you can't overthrow it. And Saul, no doubt, was aware of this advice of Gamaliel, of his mentor. But Saul didn't agree with it. He believed Gamaliel was wrong. And Saul was prepared to act independently of his mentor Gamaliel. Saul was a man who made up his own mind and was prepared to tread his own path when his beliefs and his principles were challenged. And that introduction to Saul 
gives us an insight into what he was like as a person, his temperaments and his traits. Now on this overhead, we're just going to develop a picture of Saul before his conversion as presented to us in the Acts record. The left-hand column gets to the inner man of Saul, his temperaments, his traits, his qualities. Right-hand column shows the outworking of those temperaments and traits as, as we see it in the Acts record. And especially in this, this series of overheads, is outworking as Saul the Pharisee. The record is clear on the outworking. We can see his behavior, and from that we can infer what he was like as a person, his temperament, and so on. Well, we've seen from Acts 6, we suggested Saul was present there at those events, leading into, uh, into Acts 7. And from those verses, <clears throat> we see that he and the Jews challenged Stephen. They stood up to him, based on their strong beliefs, on the law and the traditions. And this tells us that Saul as a person, as the temperament, this trait of, of standing up for what he believed in, contending for what he believed. He doesn't hold back. He's bold. He comes forward to defend his values and his principles. We also saw he disagreed with the advice of his mentor Gamaliel. Gamaliel, very respected elder, important rabbi, Jewish elders all listened to Gamaliel, but not Paul, not Saul. Saul made up his own mind. He's prepared to make his own stand. He acts independently from the counsel of even venerated elders such as Gamaliel. He makes his own decisions. Well, that leads us into Acts 7, where Saul's presence at the trial of Stephen, where Stephen makes his defense. Saul would have listened, but his mind was already set. He was listening with the intent of, of grabbing hold of something to, to convict and punish Stephen. Let's come to the end of Acts 7 in verse 57, where it says, Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears, ran upon him with one accord, and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses lay down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And so the crowd of, of Jewish elders and leaders had had enough. They grabbed hold of Stephen, thrust him out to be stoned. They're all worked up into a frenzy, intent on silencing this heretic. And, and Saul was right there in the middle of them. He's involved in the heart of it. In fact, in verse 58, he was the one... And the witnesses laid down their coats at his feet, freeing up their arms so that they could more freely hurl stones into the body and head of Stephen. And this tells us something else about this man Saul and his temperament. He's there with important job to do. He's there overseeing the stoning. He's right there in the thick of the action. It's telling us Saul's a man willing to take on responsibility, get involved and get involved at the heart of the action. He wasn't used just to standing back and letting others do the work. He was willing to take up the mantle. Well, that leads us into Acts chapter 8. Let's read Acts 8 from verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto Stephen's death. And at that time there was a great persecution against the ecclesia which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. 
And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As to Saul, he made havoc of the ecclesia, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. And so we find Saul at the start of Acts 8, stewing, musing at the death of Stephen. He's consenting, it tells us, which means hearty agreement. He's taking pleasure. He's approving of what happened there at the end of Acts 7 and the death of Stephen. He's got absolutely no remorse over the death of, of the disciple Stephen. Quite the opposite. He's glad that this heretic of the law has been taken out of the way. And the stoning of Stephen initiated a great and terrible persecution of believers at Jerusalem. So fathers, mothers were taken, interrogated, tortured, put into prison, and some of them were put to death. Children would have been orphaned. Families had to flee, leave behind their homes, all their positions. They were made destitute. But Saul didn't care. He was standing up for the law, the tradition, things of Moses, the temple. And he would ensure that this Christian movement would be stamped out, whatever the cost. Now, we learn a few more things about this man Saul from these verses. What is he like as a person, in terms of his temperament, his traits, his qualities. Well, approving of Stephen's death in verse 1 shows Saul's passion for the cause. And his views would have been evident to everyone. And that shows that Saul was a passionate person. He's clear. He's up front. You knew where he stood. He was open where he stood on, on any issue, on issues. Doesn't seek to hide it from anyone. Well, what do we learn about Saul's decisiveness from these verses. There's actually a detail in verse 1 which is made clearer in other translations. So I'll just read from the revised version where it says, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the ecclesia which is in Jerusalem. So on that day, the very day that Stephen died, that persecution began in Acts 8 verse 1. And Saul was the main driver behind that persecution. Saul is a man who doesn't wait around. He's a decisive person. He starts things immediately. He doesn't delay or procrastinate. He's got a job, a task to do. Gets on with it straight away. No hesitation. Well, notice how the persecution is described in verse 1. It's called a great persecution. And that word great is the word mega which would recognize, which is coming to our language. So that's how extreme oppression and torture and killing of the brothers and sisters in the early Jerusalem Ecclesia is described. Who made that persecution great? And there's only one real answer to that question, because it's Saul. It was mega because Saul was spearheading it, because Saul was behind it. And that tells us he was a man of a full commitment and focus. What he, what he brought to this persecution as a person made this persecution mega, made it great. Now, have a look at verse 3, Acts 8, verse 3. There's a few more details there which tell us about Saul the man, what he's like as a person. We're told in verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the ecclesia. Just come to Acts 9, verse 1, where it says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter 
and the next nine, verse 13, um, talking about Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard by many of this, this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints in Jerusalem. Well, what about everyone else involved in this persecution? Was there anyone else? Well, of course there were, but the focus in the record is Saul doing it. Saul making havoc, Saul threatening, Saul slaughtering, Saul doing much evil. And that's telling us this man has a temperament, a trait, a quality which leads from the front. He's not a leader which sits back and gets everyone else to do the hard work. He's right out there in front. He's the one in Acts 8 verse 3, knocking on the doors of all the homes in Jerusalem. He's the one interrogating all of them. He's the one directing the guards to perform all the torture and telling, telling them to put them in prison and even to death. He's a man leading from the front. Well, that's, that word havoc in verse 3 it doesn't really paint a nice picture. Other translations describe it as ravaging or laying waste. It's a picture of a wild animal on the, on the rampage, ruining, devastating, causing havoc to everything in its path, not caring particularly where it's stepping or placing its feet, causing a huge amount of damage. And, that's the, and in, that, in that picture we see the intensity and the comprehensive nature of this man Saul. What he did, he did properly. He did efficiently. Well, just the last point from verse 3 about Saul the man and what he's like. Um, it, it mentions in verse 3, he entered into every house and dragged off men and women. So Saul didn't just enter into a few houses. He didn't enter into many houses. Every house in Jerusalem he entered into. He had to ascertain where every resident of Jerusalem stood. Were they for the law or for Jesus Christ? If they were for Christ, he would haul them away for prison and for trial. And that included, in verse 3, men and women. He had no compassion, showed no pity on women who were the weaker vessel. If they were believers, well, they just had to go as well to prison and even to death. Saul didn't see a distinction between men and women. If he took father and mother, left children orphan, he didn't care. It had to be that way. He was unmoved, unsympathetic to the plight of any orphan he created through this persecution. Well, those details give us another insight into Paul. He's very detailed and thorough and complete. He's the sort of person doesn't miss a single house or a single person. Saul didn't just want to suppress this Christian movement. He wants to eradicate it totally. He wants it totally destroyed. Whatever Saul did, he did properly and wholeheartedly. He had to do that complete and full job. <clears throat> well, Acts 8 verse 1 tells us that many believers fled from Jerusalem to escape this terrible persecution. And far from the believers in Christ being suppressed or eliminated, the preaching and the response of the gospel grew and advanced greatly, we're told that in verse 4 of Acts 8. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Well, what was Saul's reaction to that growth and development of the gospel and of believers? Well, he would have been furious, absolutely livid. He wouldn't have been a happy person at all. And from the early verses of Acts 9, we have another insight into this man. So let's read Acts 9 from verse 1. 
So it says there, and Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. So at the start of chapter 9, it's probably been a number of weeks, possibly months, since the persecution began in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Saul still hasn't lost his intensity and fire for the persecution of the believers of Christ. He's not content to sit back and have a rest. He was determined to continue this, this oppression, this persecution, and fulfill that work of eradicating, destroying believers in Christ. And that shows that Paul is a persistent person. He was a man who was determined to stick to a task until it was completed. His enthusiasm wouldn't wane or grow cold despite the gospel spreading against his best efforts. He would doggedly continue until his goal, eradicating the gospel, Lord Jesus Christ's movement, the Christians, until that goal was accomplished. Well, Saul saw that he needed to, to broaden the sphere of this pers- his persecution to quell the growth of believers in other cities. So he approaches the high priest in verse 1 and 2 to obtain letters of authority to go to Damascus to, to bring back believers to Jerusalem. Well, we see from that that Saul is a man who persuades others to join his cause. He influences people. And he wouldn't take no as an answer, even the high priest himself. And we can picture him talking to the high priest, discussing um, these things to the high priest, not in a quiet, meek, submissive way, but in a strong, persuasive way, detailing why he needed these letters, why he needed them right then. It had to happen. And Saul, we're told from this record, did receive those letters from the high priest. The high priest just had to give in, give them, provide what Saul was after. Well, let's consider what those letters tell us about Saul the man as a person. Well, it shows that he was a thinker, a strategizer. He was a good planner. He saw that his persecution wasn't having its intended effect in Jerusalem and just around Jerusalem. And so he tries to outflank the spread of the gospel by going all the way to Damascus, 250 kilometers from Jerusalem. Let's come to Acts 26 and verse 11. Acts 26 verse 11 gives us some detail which Acts 9 and Acts 22 don't actually give. So it says there in Acts 26 verse 11, I punished them off in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. And that suggests, cities plural, that Damascus wasn't the first city or town outside Jerusalem where Saul extended his influence. He was a man prepared to go to extraordinary lengths to accomplish his mission. He's prepared to go that extra mile. Now just come back to Acts 22. Just give it another detail here. So Acts 22 and verse 3. Where it says, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in the city at the feet of Gamaliel, 
and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers and was zealous toward God as you all are this day. And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women. So from verse 3 we see that Saul was an exceeding zealous person. He had lots of passion, very fervent sort of person. Here in verse 3 he's zealous for God. Galatians 1 verse 14 which we read earlier He's zealous for the law and the traditions. And then Philippians 3 verse 6, we saw a zeal expressed in persecution, persecuting the ecclesia. So was a man who had that fervour for the things that he really believed in. Well, from Acts 22 verse 4, we see that Saul is a man who pursues clear goals and objectives. He knew exactly what he wanted to achieve and strove for that. He wanted to persecute believers unto the death. Eliminate the movement, and that goal was fixed in his mind. And just a final point from verse 6, where if you can see in verse 6, um, it says, Saul was travelling at noon, hottest part of the day. Such was his drive and determination. He wanted to push on, keep going until he got to Damascus to carry on his mission as quickly as possible. Rest, no option for him. He always had to be on the go, despite his own personal discomfort, travelling in the heat of the day. <clears throat> so what's a terrible picture, really, that we developed about the outworking and behaviour of Saul, the Pharisee, before his conversion? The right-hand column shows the, the awful things that he did, d- directed to, to our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ with violence and fury, pursuing them to far distant towns. Would we have chosen a man like that? Awful, frightening person, cruel, heartless, didn't care about the needs of others. And it would have been relatively easy for God and the Lord Jesus Christ just to strike down Paul on that road to Damascus, take him out of the equation, remove this persecutor from off the face of the earth. And yet God and the Lord Jesus Christ didn't do that. Saul was God's chosen instrument separated, set apart from his birth. And God, in his deep and his abounding mercy, gave Saul an opportunity to change. Because God knew Saul, called him by his grace, and through God's deep and insightful wisdom, knew that this was the man, the right man, who could, he could use in his service for the colossal task of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, what we're going to do now is is focus on on the left-hand column of these overheads and saw the man, what he's like as a person, his temperaments, his qualities, his traits. They they show what type of person he was. Now, these temperaments and qualities aren't good or bad in themselves. It's not wrong, for example, to be passionate. It's not wrong to be decisive, not wrong to be 100% committed. It's not wrong to be zealous, persistent, thorough, and so on. What makes these temperaments, these traits, these qualities, good or bad, is how they developed and outworked in life. How they outworked is Saul, the Pharisee, wasn't good at all. Actions and behaviour is called evil in Acts 9. It was. Saul, the Pharisee, was cruel, violent, destructive. But if those temperaments, traits, qualities are taken and applied in a good way for God, then how much good work could be accomplished. And that's exactly what God and the Lord Jesus Christ did with this man. His son, the Lord Jesus Christ, appeared to Saul on the way to Damascus, stopped him in his tracks, 
changed his life. All that Saul or Paul was, his temperaments, his traits, his qualities were then harnessed and used in God's service in a good and profitable way. And in every one of these temperaments and traits, we see shining out in Paul's life after his conversion, as he became Paul the Apostle, Paul the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's a man who stood up for and contended for his beliefs. That comes out after his conversion. We won't turn to Galatians 1. Hopefully you remember those words there. We see Paul challenging the Galatian ecclesia in regard to turning away from the gospel to a different one. That was wrong. It was, in fact, no other gospel. There was only one gospel, and Paul stood up for it, contended for it. It was important. It's a matter of life and death. Well, let's come to Galatians 2 for the next one. What about Paul being prepared to make his own stand? Now, it's perhaps, in a way, a little hard for us to understand the deeply ingrained Jewish mindset against the Gentiles. The Jews just didn't eat with Gentiles. They lived separate lives. Jews looked down on the unclean, filthy Gentiles. And so it was a radical change for Jew and Gentile believer, as disciples in Christ, to even eat a meal together and share fellowship and worship together. And in Galatians 2, Peter, under pressure from strong Jewish believers, regressed. He stopped eating with Gentiles. He, w- he withdrew from them. He put up a barrier of separation. And Peter was greatly respected in that early ecclesia. He was the apostle. He was an elder. He was one of the twelve, well respected by all. And yet we read in Galatians 2 verse 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with a dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? And so in those verses, Paul stood up to Peter, rebuked him publicly. Paul wouldn't be swayed on his beliefs and his principles. He wouldn't be pressurized. He acted independently and was prepared to make his own stand, even against respected elders, such as Peter, and also Barnabas, who's mentioned there in verse 13. Well, we see after his conversion, Paul was willing to take on responsibility as as an apostle. Um, He says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28, um, about those things which come upon him daily, the care of all the ecclesias. Paul felt personally responsible for the ecclesias and for the brothers and sisters in them to get involved, care, and assist for them. We see Paul's passion and, and upfrontness coming out after his conversion. Just an example of that, and again we won't turn to it, uh, from Acts 13. Remember early on in the missionary journey, the first missionary journey, when Elamas opposed him in Acts 13, it's Paul who delivers an open rebuke with passion and fervor in Acts 13. 
we see that Paul is immediate and decisive after his conversion in Acts 9. He straightway preaches. That word straightway comes up there. Paul is full of commitment and focus after his conversion. He says in Acts 20 verse 24, he would finish his course. He was determined to do that. You see, after his conversion, Paul was a man leading from the front, where he was the main preacher and speaker um, he became in his missionary journeys. He took over from Barnabas in that regard. Now come to Colossians 1. Colossians 1. I just want to see an example of, of Paul's detailed, thorough, complete temperament coming out. So we remember that word every in Acts 9. Well, it comes up again in Colossians 1 verse 28, where it says, Whom we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And in that verse, there's the triple emphasis on that word every. He wants to warn every man, teach every man, present every man perfect in Christ Paul, after his conversion, makes sure he doesn't miss a single person to tell him about the good news of the gospel. Detailed, thorough, he would tell everyone. He would give everyone the opportunity, regardless of race and nation and background. Now, we're not going to go through all of these in detail, but again, we see these temperaments and traits of Paul coming out after his conversion. It's persistent. He sticks to a task. As, he, as it says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6 and 7, he, he says that he fought a good fight. His last letter he wrote, he says those words. He has done it. He, he made sure he fought a good folk, fight, persistent right to the end. He persuades others to his cause, and he puts himself up as an example for others in 1 Timothy 1. He's a good strategizer and plans well. He placed Titus in Crete to, to help the ecclesia there put Timothy in Ephesus. He was prepared to go to extra lengths. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says he, he worked more abundantly than them all, all the other disciples. We see his zeal coming out and his care and mindfulness of, of the poor and of God, good works in Galatians chapter 2 and Titus chapter 2. And he had clear goals. He was driven and determined in, in, in preaching the gospel. So what an amazing man Paul was when we see all these things outworked in his life as Paul the Apostle. We, we marvel at God's wise choice for choosing this person for the huge colossal task for taking the gospel to the Gentiles. God required a man with undying passion, with extreme zeal and fervor, with drive, determination, a man who would be absolutely 100% committed with intense focus on the goal, who wouldn't be put off by, by suffering or, or reverses or difficulties, a man who would lead from the front and spearhead the advance of the gospel in a difficult and challenging world. God knows best, and in his wisdom, he chose the right man for this work. So it's quite an awe-inspiring list. And we ask the question, how will we ever come near to being like Paul the man? Such an amazing person, such amazing temperaments, traits, qualities, outworked so powerfully as Paul the Apostle. 
And God doesn't require us to be clones of Paul the Apostle. We're all different. We're all unique. We all have varying temperaments and traits and qualities which have been developed in our own unique circumstance in, in our lives through experiences and opportunities. And if we put Timothy's traits and qualities next to Paul's, they will be different. If we put Peter's next to Paul's, they will be different. They all had their own unique and individual temperaments and traits, and yet all of them were acceptable to God. All of them strive to let God and his word and Christ shine in them, using their unique temperaments in God's service. And that's the point for us. Whoever we are, whatever temperaments and traits and qualities we have, we need to use them for good and for God, for his service, letting him and his son work in us so that we might use what we have for his work. And so the outworking of them might not be destructive or detrimental, but positive and upbuilding and godly, striving our hardest to give glory to God in all that we do. God wants us, in our own unique way, to worship him and strive our hardest to do that for his glory. So what amazing change we've seen this evening from, from Saul the Pharisee to Paul the Apostle. From a violent, angry, cruel, oppressive young man to a man who could write such beautiful words as 1 Corinthians 13 on love and the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. A man who after his conversion showed so much care and love and devotion to his brothers and sisters and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a remarkable transformation. What really impacted his life? What really converted him? And the change affected in Paul can essentially be put down to one thing. It can be put down to one man, to one person, and that's the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The impact that Christ had on Paul was colossal, monumental. The influence of Christ surpassed everything he had gone through before. Paul said, for for to me, to live is Christ. Christ filled his life after his conversion. Christ drove him on, motivated him. And that's the subject for our class next week, God willing. For, For to me, to live is Christ. Thank you.